Well, good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, and we will be there in a little bit. We'll get there. That's going to be our primary passage this morning that we'll work through together and talk about a little bit. Let's remove that slide for just a few minutes. I'm going to bring that back up in just a little bit. Thank you. So what is God's agenda? What is God's agenda? Uh, We can answer that in one word, and that word is the gospel or gospel. I know the gospel is two words, but one word is gospel. The gospel is what God is doing. That is God's will. This is his great work. This is his great agenda. So what is that agenda? What is God doing through the gospel? And we have seen that that can be answered in two ways. He's doing two things primarily through his agenda. First, he is transferring rebellious sinners from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that happens as individuals, as the spirit works in individual hearts to bring them to the knowledge of the truth of all Jesus has accomplished in our place for us so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. And that happens as people recognize that and respond in faith to that through repentance and trusting and resting in all that Jesus has accomplished. But God does not stop at just transferring. God's second work in his agenda is to transform then those who are redeemed into the image of Christ, to transform them into maturity, into Christ. That's a great summary of what God is doing in his agenda. So, as God's people, we want to be about God's agenda, or at the very least, we want our agenda to be shaped by God's agenda, or we should. Because we have been blood-bought by him if we ourselves have been transferred and are experiencing transformation. Our agenda then, in light of God's agenda, is that we want to, for ourselves, press into this transforming work of the Spirit. We want to be transformed into maturity, into the likeness of Christ. So the first thing that we do in our agenda is make sure that we take responsibility for that and we lean into that. We give ourselves to that. We surrender to that work. And we understand that now that we have been blood-bought by Jesus... He not only purchases us us with his blood to rescue us from something, but he purchases us with his blood for something. He purchases us with his blood for our holiness, for him to complete this work in us. And so the first part of our agenda in light of his agenda is that we want to press into that for ourselves. But there's a second part as well. We are not only to press ourselves into that agenda and move into that agenda and give ourselves over to that agenda But in the context of doing that ourselves, we also have given have have been given the task of moving others into Christ, into maturity, into Christ. Whether that is uh, seeing people be transferred or pressing people into transformation. And so we have been working through this statement of how that happens. That is God's agenda. That is our agenda. So how does God complete his agenda? And it's given in this statement that contains four P's that's right there at the top of your worship guide this morning. That God's gospel agenda unfolds as God's people. That's all of us. That's everyone who is in Christ. We have all been purchased For his agenda, not only to reap the benefits of it for ourselves, but to join him in his agenda. We have all been purchased to be ministers who are busy about our king's agenda. So that's the first P, that God's gospel agenda unfolds as God's people proclaim the word of God into the lives of others. This is how God completes his agenda. That our task in this is to keep proclaiming the word of God, the truth of God's word into the lives of others, no matter where they are in relation to Christ, because it is the word that is the power unto salvation for all who believe. Amen. And that's not just true for those who are outside of Christ. If we hear that, then we have a small view of the gospel. Do you know that the gospel is just as important to you and me today as the first day that we called on Jesus' name for salvation. 
and that we are in need of the gospel just as much today as we were the day that we called on Jesus's name for salvation. Do you believe that? So we continue to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim God's word into the lives of others. But we are to do that through a couple of important means. Okay, the first we looked at last week that we are to do that in prayerful dependence on the spirit. Why? Because we do not produce the growth either in our lives or in others lives. We are completely dependent on the work of the spirit, his power to do that work in the lives of others. Okay, so we do that in prayerful dependence on the spirit. But the fourth P is the one that we're going to look at today. God's gospel agenda unfolds as God's people proclaim the word of God into the lives of others in prayerful dependence on the spirit and in perseverance. Perseverance. Will you pray with me? So, God, thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself through your word to us. Through that revelation, through your word, we can come to know who you are. But, Lord, we also can come to know what you are about. And we see through your word, uh, through all of redemptive history, how you are working your will and your plan according to your purposes. And Lord, in that, we can see who we are in light of that. Father, I pray that you'd guard us from allowing our identity to be shaped by anything outside of that. Lord, I pray that our identity would not be shaped just by our own desires or our own fleshly eyes, our own hearts, our own minds. Lord, I pray that our identity would not be shaped by cultural influences all around us. Lord, I pray that if we are indeed in Christ today, that we would seek to understand our own identity only in you, only in Christ, only in the one that we have been united with in this great salvation. Father, I pray that we would find our identity and our agenda in you and what you are about. So, God, I pray that as we come to the end of this part of this study, as we've been working through these four P's, as we've been working through this statement, God, I pray that every single member of this church would internalize this statement. Not just so that we can memorize it and regurgitate it, but God, I pray that it would begin to shape in even more profound ways, the DNA of this organism that we call the local church. God, that this is what we would be about because we desire to honor you and because we desire to be a church that is purchased by you for your mission. So God, guard us from abandoning that to pursue other things. From abandoning that and understanding who we are. So God, would you do that work in our hearts today as we wrap this statement up? And Lord, would you help us today to glimpse the picture of perfect, holy perseverance that we see in you? And that Lord, through the experience of that, you would make us people of perseverance as we are about this work of proclaiming the word into the lives of others. So God, help us today as we're in your word, and I pray that you would do that in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's begin just with a secular definition this morning. Just this word perseverance. I don't know what pops into your mind, what you think of when you hear this word, but dictionary.com defines perseverance like this. It's a steady persistence in a course of action, a purpose or a state, etc., especially in spite of difficulties, obstacles, or discouragement. Most of us would agree with that. All of us probably would agree with that. Yes, that's what perseverance is. I know what that word means. I hear it. I understand what it means. For me, it calls some words to mind. Some words pop into my mind when I hear the word perseverance. I think of consistency. If I'm persevering in something, then I am consistent in it. Second word that comes to mind is intentionality. That if I'm persevering, I'm not going to do that unless I have an intention to persevere. There has to be an intentionality there to persevere in a work or something that I'm doing. Third 
word is resiliency, right? The middle part of that definition, especially in spite of difficulties. We must be resilient in order to persevere, in order to endure. Determination is one. Determination. I persevere because I am determined to accomplish what I'm setting out to do. That helps me persevere. What about fortitude? That when obstacles come into play, when resistance comes into play, that I'm able to maintain course because I'm being, I'm being perseverant in what I'm doing. And finally, and maybe the most important word that comes to my mind is conviction. Conviction. You see, here's the truth. Conviction is never baseless, nor is it ever aimless. If I am convicted and I live out conviction that is rooted in something, it has a base, it has a ground, but it also keeps me from being aimless. Conviction is what focuses me in one direction and helps me to run after whatever I'm trying to achieve or whatever the objective is without getting distracted by so many things around me. That's what conviction is, and we must have conviction in order to persevere. I think of two snapshots that we see that embodies this for us in the life of the Apostle Paul. Two snapshots from Scripture. The first comes from Philippians 3. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3, 13 through 15. He says, Brothers, do not consider that I have made it my own. He's talking about accomplishing the goal. Okay, He's talking about reaching the finish line of faith. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But listen to what he says. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, let those of us who are, listen to this word, let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in any other thing you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the gospel has set a vision for my life. And I am focused on that vision. I'm focused on God's objective for my life in the gospel. For Paul, the gospel was not a past tense thing. For Paul, the gospel was past tense, present tense, future tense. And Paul is saying, I see in front of me this objective that God has for me in redemption. And I'm not going to say that I've reached it yet. But I'm all about straining forward for it. Paul's conviction yielded a perseverance in pursuing maturity in Christ. Do you see that? But listen to the second snapshot that we get from Paul's life. Colossians 1, 28 through 29. We've read this a couple of times in the past few weeks, Paul writes this. He says, him we proclaim. Him there is Jesus. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he goes on to say this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, but he powerfully works within me. Paul is writing to this small church in Colossae. And he's seeking to encourage them. There's so many things that are trying to encroach into the church and, and uh, it's really threatening the purity of the gospel there. And so he's wanting to address those things. But Paul is also wanting to encourage the believers there because they're all concerned about him. And so we see this sometimes in the letters that he writes. He says a little word about how I'm doing because I know that you're concerned for me. Now, why in the world would they be concerned about Paul? Just think of all that Paul is facing. Paul is in prison as he writes some of these letters. He's faced all kinds of persecution, all kinds of struggle, all kinds of hardship. And it's natural for his brothers and sisters to be worried about him. And yet, listen to how Paul encourages them. He doesn't give a full physical report of how he is doing to the brothers and sisters in this church. He says, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I toil and struggle and am willing to persevere through everything that I face for you. That my conviction is that the greatest need you have 
is to be transferred and transformed. And so I have given my life to that. My life is a blank check to God and my life is in his hands. And let me tell you something. The things that I face are not fun, but I'm willing to walk through them for the sake of this agenda. Isn't that beautiful? So Paul understands this. This conviction that he has is based where? In the gospel. There is little to no doubt in Paul's mind that the gospel is real and it is true and it is the greatest need of every single person, himself included. And so he presses into it and he's going to do all he can to press others as well. But what is Paul's aim? It's based in the gospel. His aim is the gospel in its full expression. He's not satisfied to see people come to Christ. He wants to see them transformed into the image of Christ. He wants to see them grow into maturity. What a beautiful picture of conviction that yields the fruit of perseverance. Here's the truth. We will persevere in pursuit of what we believe is really real and what we truly treasure. Is that true? We say it again. We will persevere in pursuit of what we believe is really real and what we truly treasure. That is true for us and that is true for others. And we see this in our world. This is not just a spiritual statement. We see this. I can tell what somebody's about because I can see what they are pursuing to the cost of almost everything else and what they're trying to press me into. It's that conviction that will yield perseverance. You know, when God reveals himself to Moses on the mountain in the Old Testament, he reveals for us what perfect, holy perseverance looks like. Listen to it from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. And this, this is Lord in all caps, so we know that that's the personal name of, of God. This is Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and listen, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. This is a powerful statement of God's, of who he is, but of God's faithfulness. And there's a positive and a negative side to this. Did you hear that? That God will do what he sets out to do. But listen to the beauty of the positive side, that he is a God of steadfast love. This is one of the most beautiful pictures of God that we get from the Old Testament is his steadfast love. This word steadfast love means his covenant love. It's his abiding love. It's his persevering love for his people. And God is a God of steadfast love. And we know that people love this vision of who God is and this attribute of who God is because they wrote about it time and time again. Just listen as we take a little tour through the Psalms. Listen to these statements. Psalm 13. But I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 21, the psalmist writes, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the most high, he shall not be moved. Psalm 25, portion of what J.T. read just a few minutes ago. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Psalm 26, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Psalm 33, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Psalm 36, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 40, as for you, O Lord... You will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Psalm 51, this great psalm of repentance by David. He says, um, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 85, steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace. Kiss each other. Psalm 94, when I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. 
Psalm 138, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is a recurring theme because the people of God had come to rest in the reality of God's steadfast, persevering covenant love. One of my favorite statements for what that means comes from Sally Lloyd-Jones, and she uses it all through the little Jesus storybook Bible that we have in our bookstore and that we read to our kids for years. She, she calls it this. She refers to God's steadfast love as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. What a beautiful thing. God's steadfast love for us. Listen, God's love for his elect is a persevering love. He will bring to completion what he has started. He will faithfully accomplish his agenda. Amen. We see a beautiful picture of this in the study that we just completed in Ephesians. Actually, turn over there. Ephesians 1. Should have told you to start there. But we'll make it right. This first chapter, Paul just gives this overview of this gospel work, this agenda that God is about. And we hear the persevering, steadfast love in it. Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 3 there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you hear God's perseverance in his love towards his people in that passage? Let me ask you something this morning. Are you resting in that? Are your feet firmly planted upon that foundation? That's the truth for God's people. Brothers and sisters, that's reason to celebrate. So what does this mean for us in the way that we pursue God's agenda? Well, last week we saw... It means for us that we can have complete confidence because it's the spirit who does the work that God has called us to this task. And all I am called to do is be faithful. I just give myself in faithfulness to it. And I can be confident because the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. This week we see that what does this mean for us? It means that we can be completely confident not to give up. We can persevere. Because God's agenda is true, but only when we are about his agenda. We don't give up and we have confidence to not give up. But here's the balance. And this is where we just need to be real with one another. And I will be real with you if you're willing to be real with me. Perseverance is hard. It is hard. It's hard. You know what's hard? Dealing with people. I had a professor at Southeastern who would say it like this. He was a missions professor, so you know his background. And he said, guys, there's a lot of uh, students in this class. I was taking it as an elective, loved it. But there were a bunch of students in there 
who were being trained to go somewhere in the world and plant churches. And he would say this over and over. He said, listen, guys, planting churches is fun until somebody gets saved. I'm not thinking of others in that statement. I'm thinking of me. We know this. It is hard to continue to. It's hard for the first time to speak the truth into somebody's life, isn't it? It's even harder to persevere in that. Especially when the response has not been good. It is hard to persevere. Especially in this work, because it will be saturated with spiritual warfare. Can I just submit something to you? Our enemy has no problems with churches growing in numbers all across our country. No problem with that. No problem with that. He has no problem with halls and great buildings being filled to capacity with people who just go about going to church every week and who are not following God in this agenda. Our enemy is perfectly fine with that. He cares when we start taking God at his word. He cares when a few begin to speak the word into the lives of others in prayerful dependence on the spirit and in perseverance. So let me submit this to you because I love you and I want you to hear my pastor's heart. That if you join God in this agenda, your enemy will not be happy. And because of that, we need to be able to persevere. Okay. Secondly, just because of the distinction, it sets us apart One of the most foreign, this is so sad, one of the most foreign things that you can do, even in the church, in our context, is to try to cultivate gospel community. Still, even in the church, when you go to a brother or a sister and you open up and speak the word, that's almost foreign. Brothers and sisters, this should be the norm. But persevering in this is hard. Because you will be distinctive if you are about this work. Okay? And that leads to the third reason why persevering is hard. And that's just because of the potential relational cost. That when we speak the word into somebody's life, we are putting that relationship on the line. Two questions. Is King Jesus worth it? Are they worth it? So persevering is hard. Let's not, let's not keep rolling without at least acknowledging that. So we need to hear this. Perseverance is the fruit of conviction that is anchored in the steadfast love of God. That's my definition. Okay? Perseverance, within the context of these four Ps... Perseverance is the fruit of conviction that is anchored in the steadfast love of God. Listen, conviction becomes anchored in God's steadfast love only through abiding in God's steadfast love. Let me say that again. Conviction becomes anchored in God's steadfast love only through abiding in God's steadfast love. We will only persevere in leaning into the path toward maturity for ourselves. And we will only persevere in bearing with others in speaking the truth in love in order to press them more deeply into maturity. When our own conviction becomes more and more anchored in what we see as the reality of the steadfast love of God. Listen. Perseverance is not a work that any of us can do in our strength. This is not a do better, try harder sermon. We don't do those here because we believe in the gospel. Perseverance is the fruit of the gospel. And it is only when our souls are anchored in the reality of God's steadfast love will we then begin to authentically practice that steadfast love to others. So, brothers and sisters, here's the deal. That may be where it needs to start for many of us. I'm going to go on and preach the rest of the message. But for many of us, we are not abiding in the steadfast love of God. And that must be where we start. 
Okay? The gospel is never a call to do. It's always a call to believe. Our doing flows out of our believing of what we believe is really true. And we will not come to believe and rest in God's steadfast love until we abide in it. Perseverance is a gospel work. And this is what I believe is the picture that John paints for us in 1 John 4. And I want to walk through this passage for a few minutes this morning. I want to say this, that we are called to persevere in this work of proclaiming God's word into the lives of others in prayerful dependence on the spirit. Yes, we are to do that for those who are outside of Christ. And yes, we must be willing to persevere in that. I'm afraid that we have settled in the church for one and done evangelism. That's when we proclaim the gospel to someone, they reject it, and we move on to the next person. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be willing to persevere in the work of evangelism. Sometimes all we have is one opportunity to share. But especially in building relationships with those who we are around all the time, we have to be willing to persevere in that. I will never forget how it affected me as a student in my student ministry back in East Tennessee when a guy named Jake got up. And Jake was a little bit older than us. He's about four or five years older than me. So he was out of the student ministry by this time, uh, just graduated college. And he said, I just want to share something. We were coming to the end of a share thing where people were sharing different testimonies. And Jake said, I just want to share something that's on my heart. And he got emotional. And he asked his friend Shay to stand up. Another guy in our church, about the same age. He said, I just want to say something about Shay. He said, it's the Lord. The Lord is the reason why I'm here tonight. But it also has a lot to do with Shay. He said, I want you to know that Shay, for a dozen years, has been inviting me to church. He's been sharing Christ with me. And I'm ashamed to stand here before you and tell you that I'm too embarrassed to even tell you how poorly I have responded to him. There were times where I told him, I don't want to talk to you anymore. That our friendship in my mind was ruined. It was over. Shay persevered because he loved me. And because of that, God used that to awaken my heart to the reality of the gospel. And through his perseverance, I am here. Jake is a leader in that church now. That's a testimony of the perseverance that we are to have in sharing the gospel with the lost, with those outside of Christ. Because we believe that that is the most important thing that they need. This morning, I want to focus on how we do this work within the church. So I want to make sure that we set the context for this passage in the right way. When John is talking here about loving one another, he's talking about relationships within the church, loving one another inside the church, inside Christ. Now, listen, the Bible has plenty to say about loving our neighbors. But this specific passage has to do with this. Now, listen, after we're done with this, we're going to spend a few weeks talking about how the church faithfully proclaims the word to the culture. And we'll talk more about what perseverance looks like with that. Okay, but for now, I want us to consider If you remember the visual from a few weeks ago and you've got all these people in relation to Christ and you see these people on this side of the cross that have already been transferred and they need to be transformed. I want us to think about how we as a church understand where each other is and then push each other closer to Christ. Okay, so let's look at first John and let's see how these statements play out. I believe that this passage in first John four, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses Uh, 7 through 21, I believe that we see here four keys to persevering in love that's rooted in the definitions I just gave you. Our need to be rooted in the steadfast love of God. Four keys. First, we'll look at verses 7 through 11, and I want us to see the first key is this, the consistent abiding in perfect, steadfast love. Look at verse 7 with me. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from who? Love is from God. Why? Because He is love. He's the source. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest or revealed among us, 
that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see there in your notes, for each of these points, I have given you a key word and a result. The key word from this passage and for this key is abiding. It is abiding. We cannot experience God's steadfast love without being marked by His love. If we abide in His love, our lives will be marked by His love. And what is John saying here? It's a sobering statement. It's pretty tough. He's saying, hey, if your life is not marked with God's love, then you don't know God's love. Straightforward, but it's the truth. I appreciate our brother speaking the word of God into our, into our lives this morning. We see here a focus on what Christ has done for us. How has God loved us? We see that in the gospel. And I believe that we abide in God's steadfast love by abiding in repentance. That we are to be people of confession and repentance. Because through repentance, we are continually reminded of God's steadfast love. I've done this with the students a couple of times. I've done this with my Sunday school class, our Sunday school class a couple of times. But I want to put this up on the screen for you so that you can see it. And I'm not going to take nearly the time to unpack this, but I want you to see what I think is the beautiful picture of repentance for the believer. And brothers and sisters, here's the deal. God convicted my heart about this some time ago, about the time I got this. This is not mine. This is what I'm borrowing from somebody else. That I used to think that repentance was just telling God at the end of the day, Lord, forgive me for the sins that I've committed today. That is not repentance. Okay? The beginning of 1 John, John writes for us that if we act like sin is no big deal, if we act like we have not sinned, then the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins continuously, confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the pattern that we are called to, repentance and confession. And I don't know about you, but I need a pattern of repentance and confession. Okay, so we start with our sin in repentance, and it's important that we see and own our sin. Our culture tries to teach us all the time that it's somebody else's fault. That's not really sin. It's not really my problem. It's not really this. Maybe somebody. We need to see and own our sin. And we can't do that with blanket statements asking God to forgive us. We need to see and own our sin. We also need to see the sin beneath the sin. We need to get to where the root is for our sin. Do you know that all sin is rooted in our belief in a lie? We need to identify what that lie is. What did we come to believe that led to unbelief in God that caused us to go our way instead of submitting to His way? We have to do the work to identify that. What is the root in my heart? What led to this action? Brothers and sisters, it's not so much that we are sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And so when we're dealing with outward sin, we need to be traced back to who we are. And what did I believe in my heart that led me to do this? So we need to see and own our sin, and then we need to see the sin beneath the sin, and then we need to identify the idols. Because idolatry is at the heart of all sin. I have come to place my belief in something other than God. And when I identify the idol... Then I can join in the work of destroying the idol and not just grinning my, gritting my teeth and clenching my fists and doing my, my best to stop sinning. Okay? So we see and own our sin. We see the sin beneath the sin. We find the idols. And that leads us to true repentance. And you see that the tra trajectory changes. It's not just confessing our sin. It's reestablishing faith. Look at this. When we have dealt with our sin, then I'm reminded that Jesus lived for me and Jesus died for me. That's double imputation. His righteousness is my righteousness. His death, my death. I'm reminded of that. That this sin has already been atoned for. He is already taking care of it. He lived for me and he died for me. Not only that, but I am in Christ and Christ is in me. 
It's a good thing to go back and read Romans 6 and to see how we are already dead to sin. And when we sin, it's not because I had to. It's because I stopped believing. That is what leads to true change. Let me ask you a question, brothers and sisters. If we made a common practice of walking through this with our journals and our Bibles open, spending the time necessary to evaluate our hearts, do you think that we would come to believe and celebrate the steadfast love of God? It's through repentance and confession that we preach the gospel to ourselves and we come to truly believe in the steadfast love of God. And what is the result of this? Consistent experience leads to security and rest. I'm only going to be secure in the love of God the more I come to understand the reality of the love of God. And I believe that God desires for us to be secure in his love. If we're preaching this gospel to ourselves and we're working through this process, we are continually confronted with his steadfast love. Not only that, but are we coming together to point each other through this? That's what I believe faithful proclaiming the word of God into each other's lives looks like as we lead each other in repentance. Here's the truth. Security and uh, security and rest results in freedom. Results in freedom. That's going to be important in just a second. The second thing that I want us to see, the second key to persevering in love. You see it there in your notes. A deepening conviction and the reality of God's love that authentically manifests or reveals itself outwardly. Okay? Verses 12 through 16. Listen to what they say. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Pause. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do you see what he's doing there? It's a very similar statement to what John does in the gospel in verse 14 or just after verse 14, when he says that the word became flesh. He then says nobody's ever seen God heartbreak, but Jesus reveals him to us. Right. Same thing here. Nobody's ever seen God because God is spirit. But guess what? When the church, when, when the world looks into the church and they see the steadfast love of God being practiced among one another, they see who God is. That's what John is saying. Verse 13, we, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16, I love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Here's the key words. There's two of them here. Know and believe. Know and believe. Now, listen, we're church people. Most of us have grown up in church. If I ask anybody in here to give a definition of God's love, we could probably wax eloquent. All of us. That's not the same as knowing the love of God. We know his love through experience. As we experience it and as it becomes a settled reality in our hearts, then we truly believe it. I'm willing to lay my life out on it because I know it's true and it will catch me. That's what faith looks like. And we can only develop that kind of belief and that kind of knowledge in the love of God if we abide in it. It's through that time and through that relationship that we come to truly believe that it's really real. And we will not extend God's love truly until we come to rest in it as a settled reality. So then what is the result? That's the key words. Here's the result. A preeminent gospel vision that directs and compels our lives. That as we experience it and come to rest in it and we grow secure in his love, it shapes a preeminent gospel vision that directs and compels our lives. What do I mean by preeminent? Well, I mean this, that the gospel becomes the primary lens through which we see each other and we see the world. That the more I am shaped by the steadfast love of God, the more I will see the world through the lens of God's steadfast love. The more the gospel shapes me, the more I will see everything through the lens of 
the gospel. The third key. See there in your notes, the development of God's love within us. Circle that word within us that is perfected through the ongoing experience of God's own steadfast love. Look at verse 17 first. We're going to look at 17 through 20, but look at 17 first. And the key word here is perfected, perfected. Notice it in verse 17 by this. What is the this? Well, the this points back to the verse before it. Look back at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe in the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in his love abides in God and God abides in him. The this that's being spoken of there is our coming to know and believe God's love because we have walked in it, abided in it, and we believe it. Verse 17. Now, by this is love perfected with us. That word perfected can mean matured. By this is love perfected within us so that we may lost my place. Hold on by that. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. That word perfected. What does God intend to do? He intends through the context of relationship as we abide in him and we experience his love. He intends to mature his love within us. And that doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen just because we get older. It doesn't happen just because we go to church for years and years and years and years and years. That happens only as we abide in his love. He intends to mature his love within us. Because my love is not enough. Anything I can conjure up in myself is not enough. I need him to do this work of perfecting his love within me. And that happens through the the context of this abiding relationship. And what is the result of that? I love this. Listen, the result is an ever-increasing, durable, and resilient love for others. It produces within us an ever-increasing, durable, and resilient love for others. Look at verse 18 again. There is no fear in Love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. Listen to what John is saying here. Lean into this. I think this is so awesome. Perfect love casts out fear. Do you want to know one of the biggest things that keep us from speaking the word into each other's life is fear? And we are so gripped by fear in so many areas of our life. But listen, listen, this is awesome. As we abide in God's love and we grow secure in his love, it's that security that brings freedom. And that freedom is from fear. That the more secure I am in God's steadfast love for me, that never giving up, never stopping love for me, it frees me then to be able to speak the truth into the lives of others without the fear that somehow I'll lose their love because I already have everything I need in His love. Isn't that beautiful? And I think the truth is, the reason why this happens so Rarely in the church, and I'm not just talking about Westwood, the church is because so few of us are secure in his love. We're looking for security in everything else that cannot give it to us. And when we do that, you know what we do? We just accumulate more stuff that we're in fear of losing. God intends to perfect his love in us. As we experience his love in an abiding way. And through that experience, we come to realize the reality of his love and we are secure in it. And we're so secure in it that I can be faithful in speaking his word because I believe that it's true into the lives of others. And by the way, that love is durable and resilient because I know that they need most to be pressed into Jesus And whatever the cost is for faithfulness to God, my love is durable and resilient. You may give up on me, but I will not give up on you because he does not give up on me. This is what leads to perseverance. This is a love that is 
fearless. This is a mature love forged by a humility that is entrenched in a keen awareness of Jesus, of the gospel, and in our identity in him. Brothers and sisters, this is what maturity looks like. This is maturity in Christ. Being perfected in his love. And the truth is, this love flows out of the one who has come to rest in the security of their identity in Christ. One more key. Number four. Verse 21. Fourth key is supreme desire to love Jesus by honoring him as Lord. I want us to see here that the key word is commandment. Verse 21. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a commandment. This is not something that God suggests. He doesn't say church is optional. Everything that's written in the New Testament is written to the body. It's not written to you personally. If we try to read anything in the New Testament and try to understand it from an individual point of view, we've already gotten it out of context. And God says that you have been blood bought by the blood of Jesus for this. This is my agenda. This is what I'm doing. This is what will hold up. This is what I will achieve. And I purchased you to be a part of it. It's a commandment. And we obey out of love. You know, the more that we know his steadfast love, the more that we will love him by obeying him. What is the result? Fruit. Because obedience yields fruit. It's the biblical pattern. And we're doing it in prayerful dependence on the spirit who bears the fruit. Obedience yields fruit. And so we get this picture that Paul paints in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that we are compelled by the love of Christ. Talked about that before. That word compelled means constrained. It's as if God's love is more and more these walls that are closing in around us and constraining us towards his objective. That more and more, I'm not able to respond to people in the world the way that people in the world do. I respond to people in the world and even people in the church with the love of Christ. It's him through me. I have been crucified in him. Now it's Jesus living through me. It's his love compelling me, constraining me. And if you look back at the very beginning of 1 John, flip over a couple of pages there, 1 John 1. Be reminded of what John writes here, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Look at verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But notice verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's the truth. We have fellowship with one another, brothers and sisters, when we walk in the light that is truth and when we walk in love. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Those things go together. And how is it that we love each other? The greatest way we have to love one another is to love one another toward Jesus. If I truly love you, I am going to want the best for you. If I truly love you, I want you to flourish. This is why I can't compromise the truth. It's not a statement of hatred. It's that your path does not lead to flourishing. And I have to love you enough to be honest with you and speak the truth to you in grace and love. 
We cannot love anyone any more than when we point each other toward Jesus and push each other toward Jesus. You see, here's the truth. Steadfast love is not satisfied until that work is completed. Is that our posture towards one another in this local church? I'm not satisfied until I see the gospel have its full effect in your life. I'm not satisfied until I see you come to rest fully in the gospel and in Christ. I'm not satisfied until I see you come to know just how sufficient and good God is by surrendering to Him. You see, perseverance is produced when a profound contentment in the love of God accompanies a holy restlessness to see others made complete in Him. Flip over very quickly to Ephesians 4. Let's go back to that book that we just finished studying together. Be reminded of what Paul writes there. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Throughout the New Testament, we find these one another commands. Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, build up one another, be like-minded toward one another, accept one another. Admonish one another, care for each other, serve one another, bear one another. You get the impression. I wasn't even halfway through the list, but because of time, I'll stop there. Here are two truths about every time that is found in the New Testament. Two things. Number one, all of these are given to the whole community. Number two, they are given in the continuous sense. This is to be the norm, not because of how great we are but because how great the steadfast love of our God is who is working it out within us. I love to quote this verse now even more than ever because it's my daughter Emma's favorite verse. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Christ Jesus Brothers and sisters, I don't want anybody in this room to ever be confident in me. I want this truth to be the basis of your confidence for me. And this truth should set my posture toward you. It sobers me to understand that you are going to let me down. And guess what? Most of you already know because I've already done it. I'm going to let you down. But God's not done. He's not finished with this work within me. 
And I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. And you know what? He has purchased me to be faithful, to continue to remind you over and over of the truth of God's word, because I want you to continue to press into the end of that work. This shapes our posture towards one another. We don't have the same expectations of each other that the world does because we've come to understand who we are and who God is. And this frees me to continue to persevere in speaking the truth into your life, no matter how you may respond. And the same for you to me. I want to close this way this morning. I was thinking about this this week. I can only imagine what the disciples would do if they were in a church in our day. And the pastor walks up and he says, Brothers, sisters, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew 8. And he begins to read the account of Jesus calming the storm and he gets to the line where Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I wonder if they would hang their heads. I wonder if they would think about leaving. Be very mindful of every eye in the place. I wonder what they would think if the pastor said, let's turn to Matthew 16, where the disciples forget to bring bread, and they're just bickering among each other. Where are we going to get food? And not just a little time after Jesus has miraculously fed the multitudes, Jesus looks at them and says, Oh, you of little faith, do you not perceive? Do you not remember? I wonder what would be the case for them if the pastor said, turn to Matthew 17, where the disciples are trying their best but failing to cast out a demon. And Jesus shows up, he casts the demon out, and they look at him and they say, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your little faith. Oh, beloved, if you just had the faith like a grain of a mustard seed. But then I'm reminded of this picture in John John 13 where the scene is unfolding for us, this place where Jesus will share his final meal with his disciples. Before that meal, John tells us this. He says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Can we imagine if Peter stumbled into a church service and the pastor said, turn to Matthew 14. Story of Jesus walking on the water. Peter steps out of the boat and it's going well for a while. Then he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he falls beneath the waves. And Jesus reaches down and pulls him up and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Well, the pastor says, turn to Mark 8, where Peter rebukes Jesus after Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to give my life. And this is just after Peter had rightly identified Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus rebukes him by saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I can only imagine how Peter would feel in that instance. Or in Matthew 26, where Peter vows, I will never fall away, Lord, even if I must die with you. Yet he denies to a little girl. He says, I do not know the man. But then I'm reminded of John 21 after Jesus's resurrection on the beach when he comes to Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And in all instances, when Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you, he says, feed my sheep. <laughs> He's still got a plan for Peter. Still working through him despite all the shortcomings. One more. What if James and John stumbled in to a church service, and the pastor says, everybody turn to Luke 9. This is just after Jesus has been rejected by a Samaritan village. And James and John rise to the occasion. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked him. I think about the truth that John, throughout the writing of his gospel, he refers to him not in the first person singular, but he he identifies himself through that gospel as the one who Jesus loved. You know that? The disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And there was a portion of time where I always thought that, that was kind of arrogant. You know, oh, the one that Jesus loved, huh? That's who you are. 
But if you look at the tense of that verb that John uses there, it's in the perfect tense. And it really should be rendered this way. John identifies himself as the disciple, the one who Jesus kept on loving. These disciples messed up time and time again, and yet we have Jesus' perfect example of persevering love. What a beautiful thing. Old hymn says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. Brothers and sisters, may we be people who mirror well His steadfast love through perseverance. Will you pray with me? Does our love for one another look like this? Are we growing in maturity that is marked by greater perseverance in our relationships? Do we find that as we are becoming anchored in the steadfast love of God more and more, that we are able to respond with the fruit of the Spirit of love? When we look at each other, what is our greatest desire for others? What is our greatest desire for ourselves? What are we persevering to achieve? What are we persevering and trying to get others to see and understand? Do we see in this body a steadfast, persevering, not willing to give up, see it through to the end, love? Do we put this sort of love on display to those around us who are outside looking in? And so they have the opportunity to see glimpses of the steadfast love of God. Oh, God, I pray that as we have worked through this statement, that I pray now that we would not just leave it. God, I pray, Lord, that you would shape us through it, that we would be shaped by it. Oh, God, give us perseverance in this task. Lord, help us to be confident in the fact that it's your spirit that brings it to pass. It's your spirit that enables it and empowers it, but also confident that you have promised to complete this work. Lord, help us to see that sometimes you use us to speak the truth into the life of another so that they may see that they're not truly in you. Father, help us to shape this community where it's uncomfortable to be falsely converted because we are so busy pointing each other closer to Christ. Lord, help us to be anchored in your steadfast love by abiding in it. I thank you for your word and thank you for the gift of sharing in it together. Do in our hearts now, Father, what you set out to do and help us to be obedient and faithful in our response. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.